Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of the theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Well, hello, hello. Welcome again to another episode of Small Batches. Today, I am speaking with Jeffrey Frederick and Douglas Squirrel, both co-authors of the book Agile Conversations. Let me tell you a bit about this book and my experience with it before we dive into the interview. So I like to read everything produced by IT Revolution Press. Their book, also published by IT Revolution Press, flew under the radar for me, really because I was just skeptical of it. I saw the title and thought like Agile Conversations, talking to people, transforming your organization through conversation. What? This just doesn't really seem relevant. But I decided to give it a go anyway, and I'm very glad that I did. So the premise of the book really is focusing on some of the soft skills required to align work, and collaborate effectively with people. One of the things that I've said on this podcast is that one big change, in my opinion, from kind of when I started working in this field was I had assumed that the tech was the problem or the challenge, you know, like, oh, if we could just code better or have better technology, then all these things would happen. Well, it turns out that that's not true. The hard problem in all of the systems that we work with, in my opinion, is the human beings. The humans are the ones who are actually creating the systems, or the ones who are choosing the tech, they're the ones who are, you know, throwing things into the backlog. They're all the ones who are actually making the decisions. The tech is much easier to work with than a human. You know, you can debug a machine or you can debug a program, but debugging a human being is infinitely more complicated. (laughs) Definitely not going to yield the same results. So what they try to do in this book is provide a framework for aligning and transforming your organization through conversations. Now, this is the point where I cover some of the topics discussed in the book because I don't think you can really participate in the conversation without having some understanding of the book. So what they have is called the four R's, sort of a process for thinking about and analyzing your conversation. So first, record your conversation. They have something called a two-column analysis. Reflect, revise, and role play. And of course, repeat. So the two-column analysis is one column, what one person said, and another one, like what they thought or felt. Sort of how they, how the other party received the message. And by Going through this, you can effectively analyze the conversations you're having and make sure that you're being, you're, you know, communicating clearly with other people. And then you can see where things went off the rails. You know, if you ever had a conversation with somebody, you realize you're talking about two different things. Well, then, you know, you're misaligned. And they have, which is the coolest thing uh, from this book, is what they call TDD for people. You can imagine this as a ladder. So at the bottom of a ladder is observable data and experiences. 
see, as video might capture it. On top of that, a person says, I select data from what I observe. On top of that, I add meanings, you know, cultural and personal. On top of that, I make assumptions based on the meanings I added. On top of that, I draw conclusions. From that, I adopt beliefs about the world. And finally, I take actions based on my beliefs. So with this TDD for people ladder and the tools for effective conversation, you can track your conversation with somebody and making sure that you're aligned each step of this ladder, right? You can't, both people can't draw the same conclusions from a conversation if they don't agree on what the observable data is or what the meanings are. There's a sort of hierarchy, debugging hierarchy and how to think about the conversations that you're having with people. So now that you're armed with this understanding of conversation, you're ready to begin what they call the five conversations. I'm just going to read you off this page of the book. The first is a trust conversation. We hold a belief that those we work with inside and outside the team share our goals and values. That leads to the fear conversation, where we openly discuss problems in our team and its environment and courageously attack those obstacles which in turn leads to the why conversation. We share a common explicit purpose that inspires us. What follows is the commitment conversation. We regularly and reliably announce what we will do and when. And lastly, the accountability conversation. We radiate our intent to all interested parties and explain publicly how our results stack up against commitments. So I think that's enough context to jump into the interview. Uh, Jeffrey and Douglas and I got to just go through high-level topics in the book, why it's important, and some of their experience. And they ask me about my own personal experience uh, with the book. And I recall a point in the conversation where Jeffrey is explaining something, and I felt like this guy is just in my head. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows what I'm feeling. And he knows sort of where I'm going wrong. So after I completed the book, I tried to put some of the practices in action and just become more cognizant of how I was talking to other people, the assumptions I was making, and trying to make sure that we were aligned. Not really able to practice the TDD for people yet, but given time, I think it will happen. Now, I want to give you some background on both of these guys. All right, let me read off Jeffrey's bio. Jeffrey is an internationally recognized expert in software development and has over 25 years experience covering both sides of the business technological divide. An early adopter of XP and Agile Practices, a conference speaker in the U.S., Europe, India, and Japan, and a co-organizer of the Continuous Integration and Testing Conference. He has had a global impact on software development. Jeffrey is currently managing director in London at Tim, an Acurus company. He also runs the London Organizational Learning Meetup and is an executive coach and executive team facilitator. Plus, he also had a really good interview on Gene Kim's Ideal Cast, so I recommend that you check that out. Now, his co-author, Douglas Squirrel, has been coding for 40 years and has led software teams for 20 He uses the power of conversations to create dramatic productivity gains in technological organizations of all sizes. 
Squirrel's experience includes growing software teams as a CTO in startups from fintech to e-commerce, consulting on product improvement at over 60 organizations in the UK, US, and Europe, and coaching a wide variety of leaders in improving their conversations, aligning to business goals, and creating productive conflict. He lives in Frogholt, England, in a timber frame cottage built in the year 1450. Hope he has fiber internet. All right, one last thing to mention before we get into the conversation. If you're still skeptical about this book, one thing that hit me straight away was the first chapter, which is a great history on Agile, DevOps, Lean, and they connect it directly back to conversation and culture. So this really is a book for tech people, software developers, kind of focusing on the soft skills, the human side of our profession. So if you enjoy this conversation, then check the book out. I think it will be worth it. Now, I give you Jeffrey Federick and Douglas Squirrel. Jeff and Squirrel, welcome to Small Batches. How are you both today? Doing great. Thanks for having us, Adam. Glad to be here. My pleasure. So today we will be talking about your book, Agile Conversations. And uh, having read the book, I was really surprised by it. You know, initially I kind of wrote it off because I didn't really see how this would be applicable to me. But then when I read it, I found myself nodding along and almost like had there had been written a book just for me. <laughs> so I, in the one of the first chapters, it's the whole point about like having conversations. And uh, maybe we can start by the first thing that really connected with me, which was the false consensus effect and like how that was impacting me and my job as an SRE trying to, you know, coach and improve behaviors in people got me thinking like, oh, maybe I'm actually like frustrated in my day-to-day work because I'm operating under the false consensus that people already understand or know all the stuff that I think they do, but I had never actually put my finger on that. Mm-hmm. So by reading the book, it allowed me to actually name this thing that's happening to me. And then the rest of the book just sort of like, ah, oh, I kept like opening my eyes up more and more. So Great. maybe we can start there. I mean, at the beginning, like this, this issue that, that I'm having, how does this relate to the challenge that we face in software development? Well, the, what comes to mind, you're, you're describing uh, a cognitive bias that affects humans. And I think one of the, the elements that we really focus on in the book is in, in, in really trying to make it blameless uh, in a way to say, you have these conversational difficulties not because you're a bad person, because you're a person. <laughs> and these are it, it, these things can come up because of the way our minds work. And um, our lack of access to what other people know, uh, what they believe, what they're feeling internally, and yet uh, a real uh, sense very often that we feel like we can read them. And uh, the problem is, and, and, and I should I should add an important uh, disclaimer here, which is that if any of your your listeners are uh, Adam, if any of your listeners are telepaths, then they're probably not going to get a lot from this book or this podcast. So they should probably like get in touch with us, <laughs> and we can talk to them about like some stock market ideas we have and and some clever things to use the telepathy. But um, if they're not telepaths, which I think will take in most, if not all, of your audience, then we probably have something to say to them. Oh. Goody. <laughs> so we, 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 have a, we have a problem because we, we have a level of confidence in the stories we generate 
um, that is really an unfounded fundamentally. And, and the problem is that we, we generate stories all the time. And and we're accurate actually most of the time. So this is really and it's really useful to generate stories. It's a really good yeah. adaptive practice. It, it helped our ancestors survive. Like you didn't have to like check and say, Jeffrey, you know, are you running away from a lion or just because you want some exercise? Like if you're running away from the lion, <laughs> I'm going to run away too. That that really worked well, and it works well in a lot of circumstances. So it's actually a very good characteristic. It's just that it's um, very hard to uh, to distinguish between the assumption that you have that you can read somebody else's mind mm -hmm. and the reality of what they're actually thinking because it's such a strong bias. Yeah, that's right. And and I think what's, what's, you know, I really like the example you mentioned, Squirrel, because we, we our um, selection criteria for, for what we, this evolution of psychology was really shaped mostly by the life or death situations, mm. the ones where you had the luxury to sit around and talk things through, which is our normal environment today. Like that's not, really what what was uh, the deciding factor it was you know did you did you start running soon enough did you did you did you hide did you react appropriately to the life and death danger and so we're really miscalibrated in that sense for modern life for the sort of collaborative work we do together is different and it would and it, it benefits in sort of this more thoughtful overriding of those instincts that we that that are the ones that are triggered quickly mm. I think this is also one of the points you make in the book, which is how the transition to more collaborative software development, as we know it in terms of like lean, agile, and DevOps, has made the simple act of communicating far more important, but perhaps also challenging than it was in the past. I know you use the example of Taylorism mm -hmm. in the fact that like, okay, maybe we can all be treated as individual little robots doing our part where we don't think, we don't have to collaborate, we just, you know, pull the levers and, and that's it. But that's not the sphere that we operate in now. We have to talk, we have to communicate, we have to do all of these things. So for me and for other people who have these biases, what do we do to like identify those biases and then figure out some way to move beyond them so that we can more effectively collaborate and communicate with say, our coworkers or you know, our managers or whoever? I mean, where do we start with that? Well, so what's really important is that you follow every uh, line of your favorite Agile book and you do every single ceremony precisely the way it says. So if it says on page 70, no, this isn't the case. That's not the secret. And that's one of the challenges that, that we're trying to overcome in the book is the idea that if you just follow the practices more carefully, you will somehow get good results is just not true. And that doesn't matter whichever practice you're going to follow, whether that's safe or scrum or something somebody invented yesterday or, or, or any other one. The secret is not in following a certain set of practices really carefully and getting everything exactly right. The secret is in having better conversations and for causing that and making that a, a first-class element of your work. In the same way, at some point in the past, we, a lot of us at least started to make tests a first-class mm -hmm. part of our work. We kind of say, uh, it used to be, and I remember this time when there was kind of, the, and some people still exist in this world, of course, where there's this kind of separate thing where the tests were happening, and then there was this other place where the real work was happening, and those were quite diverse, uh, quite separated worlds, and we didn't study tests. We just said, oh, there's some testing thing. I was, uh, you know, not not important. We're going to test this code, and we're going to really work on this code, and we're going to make the code really wonderful. Turns out that if you work on the tests as a first-class element of your coding, you will get better code 
And that's an amazing, wonderful result. Similarly, if you treat your conversations as a first-class element of your development process and alongside doing good practices and having good ceremonies and the other things, we're not saying those things are useless, but if you do that alongside it, you will suddenly get uh, much better processes, much better collaboration, much better results from your uh, Agile or Leaner DevOps team. And the reason is because the conversations are how we experiment. It's how we gain knowledge about what other people think and believe. Mm-hmm. So in, a, in one way to describe it is you say, well, how do we proceed in this new world? Is Well, we should proceed by experimentation. We should experiment with the knowledge, with the, the certainty that there's unknowns to overcome. So which is why we describe in, in, in the need to uh, do probe sense respond in, in the Kinevin framework sense. You know, we're dealing in a complex environment where there will be emergent behavior that we can't always predict because we can't fundamentally predict humans and and their behavior. Instead, we have to proceed experimentally. And that's true about individual humans and it's true about clusters of humans and teams and clusters of clusters and organizations. You have these emergent properties and, and we have a mental model in our head, but it's imperfect. And so we need to be developing and refining that model. The way that you experiment with humans, the way you probe sense response is through conversations. That's, that's, your, that's your way of being scientific with each other is through running these experiments conversationally. So you, you mentioned this model you have in your head with regards to like conversations interacting with other people. And in the book, you introduce an aptly named model, which I just love so much, which is TDD for people. So can you explain what that is and how we can leverage that to have more effective communication. Sure. So TDD for people is a name for something that existed before, but it's it's kind of a customization uh, and a way of explaining it to, to us techie folks uh, that really helps us understand this idea. The underlying idea is called the ladder of inference. And uh, the idea is the following. Uh, it would be really helpful, given that we're not telepaths. Again, your telepaths, I hope, have switched off and gone somewhere else. And this isn't going to help them. But for all of us who aren't telepaths, one of the biggest challenges is the reasoning that happens inside our heads, it stays in our heads. So that means, for example, if Jeffrey is uh, not um, uh, answering this question, but I am, I might form all kinds of opinions about why he's not answering it. Um, and I might have uh, all kinds of ideas about it, but I have not found out what Jeffrey actually thinks. All I can see is Jeffrey waited for me to answer this question. And if I have negative views, then I might form all kinds of negative opinions. If I have positive views, I might form all kinds of positive opinions. None of them are validated other than by observing Jeffrey's behavior. But there's all kinds of reasoning that might be going on there. So what I could do instead is something that um, has a feeling to it that is similar to the feeling you get in test-driven development. So I'm going to assume that your listeners have tried it. They haven't, they should, because test-driven development is wonderful um, and really teaches you a lot whether or not you use it in your day-to-day work, which I certainly do. When you do test-driven development, the signal most noticeable, most uh, significant thing, at least for me, is that that the change, the thing you notice, is that uh, suddenly things are slower and more in control. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you're taking small steps that help you to understand exactly where you are and you you can test at every single moment. So every line of code you feel you have confidence in and it feels it feels slower. Now, eventually you can go faster and you don't feel like you're going that slow. Uh, but at, at first, when you're doing test-driven development, you feel like you're taking every step carefully, but with confidence. 
So instead of running along and tripping, you're, you're walking carefully and, and placing your feet in the right places. Similarly, uh, walking up the ladder of inference to find out what someone else is thinking feels that way because you can test at every moment. So Jeffrey, I noticed that you had that I answered this question and you and you didn't. Is that right? Did I notice that correctly? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and something that's important about that for me is that I noticed you you were uh, we can see each other here. I, the listeners can't, I'm sure, but but um uh, I can see you and I noticed you were you were looking down. Is that right? That seemed like an important part of not answering the question. Is that was that important to you that you were looking down not at the camera? No, not not particularly. Oh, okay. Just, I, well, was, kind of, I was just sort of look. You know, it's a it's it's primarily an audio audio thing, and uh, I was I was um, if anything, it helped me focus on what you were saying. So I was just uh, listening closely. Ah, uh, so so I might adjust the story I have in my head at this point and say, well, wait a minute, there maybe something else is happening. Then I could check that with Jeffrey. So so one assumption I have about that, Jeffrey, is that you were trying to concentrate on on what we were saying. Is that right? You were you were listening carefully when yeah, when you were that's right. Back. And in, in part because I want to hear, hear what you're saying in, in case there's something I want to elaborate on when you finish the part of it that you were covering. Got it. And the conclusion I draw is that you think this podcast is important and, and listening is important and that, that I might have something useful to say that you'd like to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and also, you, you know, you used TDD for people much more than I do. If one of us was going to answer that, be the lead person answering, it was certainly going to be you. Not that I don't use it, but I think you're, you've been uh, much more proactive in, in uh, introducing it to people than I have. Got it. Makes sense. And so what I could have done now, I certainly didn't have any negative view of it. I just used this as a as an immediate example. But I could easily, if I were nervous about this, have felt that Jeffrey, by looking down and being disengaged, was suddenly not respecting what I had to say. And I might have this very negative story that I had built up in my mind. Mm-hmm. And that might lead me to take different actions as a result, which Jeffrey would in turn not understand. So I'm not going to go through it. But I could similarly share that story. In in your in your example scroll, I think one one element you, the this idea of the TDD for people as far as you're testing your observations and assumptions, and and you say that then the, the equivalent of a red test, like when something fails, like what you're testing comes back negative, then uh, that you're like, oh, okay, now I have a chance to learn something new, and I think that happened. Yeah, you, you call it at the time, but maybe for the listeners, what like, I think it was the second question you asked. Exactly. So the second the question, I had had a bit a kind of assumption that looking down was important. Jeffrey thought about it differently. In in my imagined situation, of course, I did not actually have this this theory, but um, uh, that that was a, a shift. That was a red test, which then allowed me to to check um, that, that that I had understood and that uh, understood correctly. Now that Jeffrey's view was different than I had assumed it was, and that his reasoning was different from mine. And that's a really useful thing to get green tests and then red tests that tell you to change and then continue to test that you're uh, aligned on your stories. That's right. And conversationally, one of the things that happens is it's a nice combination of transparency and curiosity, Mm. which is in asking your tests, you know, you're also sharing your own internal state. You're sharing like, you know, I noticed this, so this is the data I have, and this is the kind of, I I had we put importance on it. How about you? Uh, you know, and, and I no okay. So you both you both been transparent and shared your own mental workings and inquired into the other person's, and so you have the opportunity for both people to learn. So, for example, I learned what squirrel was observing. I learned what story, what weight he was putting on it. And um, you know, is, is, this is a bit of a trivial example, but in the future, if this was important, then I might think, oh, okay, well, Scroll prefers it when there's eye contact, in, you know, in the Zoom mm. meeting during recording, or he gets nervous if I'm looking away because he wants people to signal me, like, hey, come in here, or, you know, it, there could be some 
or, or, uh, more, or more importantly, it, it could be a real change or changing um, change to our relationship because you would understand that I felt less important or, or not listened to or um, that, that um, you didn't respect what I was thinking. None of this is actually true, I hasten to add. But, but if we had that relationship, if we had that difficulty in our relationship, that might be poisoning a whole bunch of ways that we collaborate and things that we do together. And that could have a massive effect on the way we collaborate in the future. So uh, uh, a long answer to Adam's question, but, but that's the basics of, of test-driven development for people. Jeffrey has more to say. Well, well I think that with, you know this seems sort of trivial, but I I, I learned you know, how many times you have teams where their um, retrospectives are you know lifeless, mm. uh, or or their stand-up is is dreary, and you know and there's just like the, the dynamics just aren't working. Um, and it, and you don't like there could be all kinds of things behind this. I, uh, I I was talking to someone last week who I work with, and um, she was describing that when she worked in Germany, um, she had a problem there because the way that she would say good morning was with the wrong tone, mm. and and people it was interpreted as a brusque like I don't want to talk to you. That wasn't her intent. She just is not a native German speaker. But the people had the reputation of her. She had the rep- developed the reputation of being uh, unapproachable and and rude. And when she learned it, she was like, "Oh, I'll say good morning differently." And suddenly, the, her relationship with people was different. And it can be, you know, small. And it, it it's it's really been this issue of stories. The stories that people had had invented were not something that they were testing with her. So the the dynamics that resulted were uh, out of line with reality. Um, and that's the, that's the value of, of TDD is, you know, we, we're taking it here as those just personal interactions, but the same thing could be, you know, on process issues, it could be on technical issues and uh, really getting ideas out there. Uh, because the alternative is that people most typically, my experience is there's sort of two failure modes in conversations, which is either unproductive conflict between people. Mm-hmm. And that certainly happens. And it's what people, when they think about bad conversations, they they focus on that, like, negative, toxic interactions. And they're so afraid of that, that the actual more common failure mode of conversations is that people see the potential for a threat or embarrassment in a conversation. And so they shy away from it and they don't discuss the elements that really need to be discussed. And so that's where you end up with a sort of false consensus in this group think mm-hmm. where, you know, essentially there's a discussion coming up. Someone has an opinion. Everyone goes like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, let's do that. And meanwhile, they're thinking internally, that's a terrible idea. That will never work. <laughs> Why, how can we always do these dumb things? And, well, and the, answer, the reason is because you don't share your actual opinion. You don't have the discussion where everyone puts forward their view and, and actually come to a real consensus <laughs> as opposed to the false one. Yeah, so just to, we haven't really actually talked about what all the steps on the ladder of inference are, but it's probably good for the listener. We have at the bottom here, observable data and experiences, as you might imagine as video might capture it. And you notice from, that's what I started with with Jeffrey. So I said, I noticed that you uh, weren't, weren't answering. And so you can fall off the ladder. You can get that red test as early as that stage mm-hmm. because Jeffrey might have said, I was trying to speak, but my mute button was on. Yeah. And I, I learned something new that would change my whole point of view. Anyway, keep going. You were talking over me the whole time. I was exactly I was like, "Why weren't you listening?" Well, because your mute button was on. <laughs> My earphones are broken. You know, you could learn a lot of things mechanically that might change the whole view. So, on top of the observable data, you have then the next step, which is I select data or I select data from what I observe, 
And then on top of that, so I add meaning, cultural and personal. And then above that, this is where the false consensus effect comes in. I make assumptions based on the meanings that I add. And then, or maybe one layer above that, I draw the conclusion that maybe that's where some of these assumptions come in. And then above that, I adopt beliefs about the world. And then at the very top, I take actions based on my belief. So in the book, you mentioned these different conversations you can have, and they all sort of build upon each other. But let's say that you know you have one of these false assumptions. What conversation do you start with? Like, is this an internal thing? Is this a sort of which? How did you describe it, Jeffrey? Like, a honest curiosity, or what did you what What did yeah. you say? Well, maybe, maybe you can give us an example because you you know you you talk about having these false consensus. Do you have one in mind, or you know? Okay, you sure. Let me. Give, yeah. Okay, I'll give you one of my. Well, least favorite, but most common uh, false consensus is, which is, let's say that um, a member of a development team should take the full responsibility of, you know, building and deploying the application to production, you know, i.e. like mm-hmm. you build it, you run it. If we're all under the assumption that, hey, we're operating in sort of like a DevOps lean sort of agile software culture, then it may be safe to assume that all the participants in this exercise will adopt that or share that view, at least that's sort of assumed. But mm-hmm. in practice, perhaps that's not the case for X, Y, and Z. But you know, how do you actually come to realize that assumption and what do you do about it? Yeah, well, I think this is, this is a, a great example. And so um, you see that the, the latter there is, is uh, um, a model of how we go um, from the things from stimulus to our response. You know, so if you if you ever heard the Viktor Frankl quote, this is between stimulus and response is a pause, and in that pause is our ability to choose. That you know that that pause is where you're going through this process, and you have the ability to sort of examine your own thought process. And when we when we don't allow us that space, what tends to happen is we we take our conclusions as reality, mm. right? And the value of this model is to is to say, um, look, you yourself. Didn't the, the things that you believe about the world are derived? You didn't. You're not observing the nature of the world. So, in your case, I'm going to say, like you can say, you have a belief that uh, DevOps model or Agile model or whatever you means you build it, you run it, right? And and therefore, we have the label. We've said that we're a DevOps company. Ergo, you build it, you run it is a shared value. Mm. Well, if I say that loud. It's easy to take that as a fact about the world, but the this model says, well, wait a minute, that's a belief that I have. Let's go back and test how did I get there? Well, I I observed, I read something somewhere that said you build it, you run it. I watched a video. Mm-hmm. It made sense to me. I've adopted that as a good idea. And I think that's the way things should be. It's and almost like per- you're in my head, Jeff. <laughs> well, I think I think it's what you came up with is very reasonable. <laughs> And then, then so once you understand your own ladder, and this is the first insight that your ladder exists. Once you understand your own ladder and that it exists, you can then imagine a world where someone else has a different ladder and it could be separated, as Squirrel said, on any rung. Maybe they didn't read that book. Maybe they didn't watch that video. You know, said, uh, maybe it didn't seem like a good idea to them. <laughs> Maybe someone told them, you know, humor this guy, Adam. He has some crazy ideas, but you know, don't don't actually do anything that he says. <laughs> so then, then your conversation isn't with them; it's with somebody else. 
And so, so there's all kinds of ways to fall off the ladder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is the this is the idea is that you once you have this idea of a ladder, first you can apply it to yourself, and then you can say maybe other people have a different ladder, and then you can start being curious. And this is the key idea. Rather than thinking, how do I go make them adopt my ladder? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, instead we're gonna say, I want to understand their ladder, and maybe we can find common ground. Maybe not. And, and in general, to say this be- as we go forth, it's really important to cultivate curiosity. There is nothing in the world that would say take two people and a topic, and in the end they'll come to agreement on it. There's no methodology, there's no way to say that in the end, two humans on a given topic will come to real consensus. But what is possible is that two people of goodwill will be able to come to a mutual understanding. You can come to understand someone else's point of view, even if you disagree. Right. So at the end, you can say, okay, I know what their ladder is. I know what they believe. I know why they believe it. I don't agree. I, I have different assumptions or I have different values. It turns out we're different humans and different humans are allowed to, to like and dislike different things. And that's okay. But what I can always do is say, I can always understand. And that's the mind for saying that we put out there, that which is at least go and understand each other. And what often happens is in those steps towards mutual understanding, more often than not, almost always, you will find common ground. I can give a concrete example of that in a situation that's not at all dissimilar to yours, Adam. Mm-hmm. So uh, just the other day this week, uh, earlier this week, I was meeting with a group and I was training them in something new that they had not seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for concreteness, it's a technique called elephant carpaccio that can let you have every developer deliver something valuable every day. But it doesn't really matter what the technique was. Um, so I was I was encouraging them while I was teaching them about this thing. But I had a specific mindset. I had that curious mindset. Um, that that, uh, Jeffrey was just describing, because I knew there were probably things I didn't know about the team's situation. So I taught them all about it, and we did some exercises, and we discussed it. And then the crucial part of the meeting happened, where I said, okay, so so how might this apply to you? And I really want to know how this works. I genuinely am interested, because this may or may not work for you. And I'd seeded that all the way through. I said, I want you to understand it and see how it could work. But what, what does this mean for you? And I learned two things which really changed what I did. The first thing is I learned uh, from a couple of them that they really felt under pressure for a deadline that was coming the next, uh, this coming Monday and uh, adopting anything new, adopting, you know, any new technique, adopting a new logo color for their logo or anything would have changed them, thrown them off completely. So they were feeling under this pressure and didn't want to shift right now, which I could completely understand and had not known at all. I did not know that was their context or their situation. So it's really made sense to say, well, wait, wait until Tuesday to try this new thing. And the other thing I learned is there was one person who has some, some more testing responsibilities in the team. And she said, you know, this is going to mean that I'm going to have to do five times as many tests because we were releasing kind of one uh, once a week. And now we're going to do it every day. And, and like that's multiplying by five. And I don't know when I'm going to sleep. <laughs> and that was really useful to understand because I hadn't em- emphasized the testing element. I hadn't understood that's the way the team worked. I, I hadn't put that all together. And her feedback was very helpful. I, I can now work with her while we wait for Tuesday to, to help her have a, a, an approach to testing that will scale better and that will not have that effect. But if I hadn't known that, it would have been very, and if I hadn't inquired, if I hadn't sought the opposing views, um, then I would not have known any of this. And I would have said, great, so let's start this tomorrow. Aren't we all, you know, let's go. 
and they would have probably missed their Monday deadline. And this poor person probably would have quit or not slept or something because she would be trying to do five times as many tests, which is not what the technique entails. But she didn't know that. So in both cases, um, I didn't necessarily change my mind completely. I didn't say, oh, yes, I definitely agree with you. This can't work for you. Um, but what I did do is I learned um, important barriers that could help me to help them in one case to say, don't do it yet. And in another case to say, do it differently. And, and that's really helpful in the process of adopting a new technique, such as uh, the DevOps methods you were just referring to. All right, let's take a quick break from today's episode so I can tell you about my other software delivery resources. First, I'm opening up my own software delivery dojo. My dojo is a four-week program designed to level up your skills building, deploying, and operating production systems. Each week, participants will go through theoretical and practical exercises led by me designed to hone the skills needed for continuous delivery. I'm offering this dojo at an amazingly affordable price to small batches listeners. Spots are limited, though, so apply now at softwaredeliverydojo.com. Well, if you want something free instead, I've got you there too. Find links to my free email courses and ebooks on any show notes page. My courses and ebooks cover topics in much more depth than I can cover on the podcast. They're great on their own or even as a useful complement to topics covered on the show. Find all of my free resources at smallbatches.fm. All right, let's get back into the episode. Well, it sounds like that example is a great segue into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is the conversations that you mentioned in the book. For the listener, they are the trust conversation, the fear conversation, the why conversation, commitment conversation, and accountability conversation. So it sounded like this tester, she had a fear that she would not be able to sleep or that it would cause, you know, extraordinary amount of work on her that without voicing that fear, then insert any number of negative outcomes that could happen. Mm-hmm. So earlier we were discussing the ladder of in- the ladder of inference. So depending like where you are on that ladder of inference and where you find, hey, maybe you're misaligned with whoever you're talking with, does that influence which one of these conversations that you have? Or how do you know which one of these conversations to have like in the right context? Great question. We, we don't get that one often. So I, I really <laughs> like hearing that question. Um, my favorite answer to that one is if you're not sure, start with trust mm-hmm. because they, they, they build on each other. And so if you're not saying to yourself, look, we have really good trust. We really understand each other. We're really set. Do trust. And, and that's where the ladder of inference TDD for people comes in. That's one of the techniques you can use to build trust. So if you're not sure, start there. But what you might encounter is uh, high degrees of trust, but um, high degrees also of fear and, and um, no mitigation for those fears. So you might want to go to the fear conversation. You might say, look, we've we handled those things, but man, we just can't seem to make any good commitments and people don't understand what they're doing. And that might be why our commitment, or it might be they're really committed in there, uh, but they're, boy, they just keep missing everything. <laughs> so that would be accountability. So it's usually not that difficult to kind of go from the symptom to the relevant conversation, but it's easy to go to, to, to not deep enough, not to go to trust and fear, which are the ones that are most difficult. So my recommendation would be if you're not sure, uh, try, try trust because it can't hurt to build some more trust mm-hmm. and you'll rapidly figure out, I've got that one and then see where, where else you can move up to. Yeah. So I mean, here we're talking about conversations. We're not necessarily talking about um, like trust falls or things like this, but what no, are no, some... No. So, <laughs> no, that's very different. So for exactly. us, trust is aligned stories. It's where you you have worked through the ladder of inference together and you say, yep, I may not agree, but at least I understand where your story is. It makes sense to me. I can see what your reasoning is that got you from what you observed to what you're doing. 
Right. So like if you're looking at this ladder of inference and you're coming that, hey, we are observing different data, well, then it's really hard. We're, we're to never going to get to the same answer. <laughs> exactly. We're not going to trust each other because you're seeing it with from one point of view and me, the other. Jeffrey's example of good morning in German is mm. a perfect one. I'm observing me being friendly and, and nice by saying good morning. You're observing a, a rude person who's using the wrong uh, in the, the wrong uh, case for the data for something. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking the language wrong. We're going to observe different data. We're never going to draw the same conclusions, and we can't build trust. Yeah, I mean, it seems one of the things I remember from reading the book when we talk about conversations with regard to trying to build trust, it's more about being open, transparent, and curious so that you can expose your inner state, your inner logic, and your inner mental model about whatever the topic at hand is to the other people so that they can mm-hmm. look at you and say, as you say, I may not agree, but at least I know where this person is coming from. And like without, without mm-hmm. that, then you're not going to get to anywhere else. So, but, but we're missing an important element here. So there's part, oh, part, yeah? we, part we haven't talked about, which is we're, we're saying to do all these wonderful things. And you know, I gave an illustration of how you could use the ladder of inference and build trust and improve the relationship with Jeffrey. I said nothing about how to actually do that. Because you you could like write down all the words from the transcript and, and try to say them to your <laughs> friend, but you probably are not interrupting each other while you're being inter- interviewed in a podcast. You're probably discussing some other important topic. So you can't just copy the words from somebody else. It won't work. So that's one of the most important things that people miss in the book. And, and I'll ask you this, this um, uh, challenging question, Adam. When you read the book, did you get out a piece of paper and write on it a conversation on one side of the paper and your thoughts and feelings on the other side of the paper? Did, no, did you do that? I must okay. bear myself as a sinner and say that I have not completed <laughs> You're that You're not exercise. a sinner because you got something from the book, which is fantastic. <laughs> we're interested enough to have us on, so we're never going to object. <laughs> but um, you didn't get as much as you could. And and you, I predict, I don't know this, you could be one of the very few exceptions who can read the book and then apply the techniques and get a lot of value from them. But most people find it very difficult to actually produce the kind of interactions that Jeffrey and I have been modeling and describing. It's actually quite hard to get yourself to say that. Can you explain that technique to listeners who are not familiar with it? Yeah. Je- Jeffrey, would you like to do that or should I? I'll, I'll let you describe the, the paper, but I'll, I'm going to put a bit of um, framework around it. Just because Perfect. one of the, the key things here is um, the reason why you can't produce what we're describing is because it's actually a skill. Mm. And all skills require practice. Um, the challenge is with conversations is that we don't think of them as a skilled activity. Right. If if this was a if this is a book on piano playing, uh, and we we talked about piano techniques, you wouldn't finish and go, "Wow, I really enjoyed that book, and I think I can play piano now." You you <laughs> you would say, "Okay, I really like that. I want to apply it. I guess I'd better practice what's in the book. Maybe and, I should get a piano. If, maybe if you, yeah, maybe if you, you didn't have a piano and you read the book, you would not feel that you were a concert pianist. You would only feel that way if you would actually moved your fingers on a board and, and the keyboard. And that that is the same thing." That's right. And and the thing is that conversations do require skill. They require deliberate practice in the same way that you require practice in piano or snow skiing or, you know, kite surfing. Any kind of skill you want to develop is going to require practice. And so one of the things we introduce in the book, and actually before we get to these five conversations that you mentioned, right, uh, we have the, a, a framework called the four R's of how you will practice the conversational skills for each of the conversations. And so the, there's the, the sort of important message of the book is these are skills you need to practice. Here's a framework for practicing. And by the way, you can apply this uh, framework 
for any conversational tool, both the ones in the book and the ones not in the book. So with that, we'll, I'll let Squirrel say introduce uh, um, the four R's of uh, uh, conversational skill practice. And uh, why why does he keep talking about a piece of paper? Like how does a piece of paper relate to the to the four R's? Exactly, yes. So, and, and this is a good role reversal because normally Jeffrey does it. So you may have to remind me what the four R's are. Yeah. <laughs> and and here's, here's a spoiler, there are more than four of them. So um, the, the first thing to do is to get this very complicated material, which is a single sheet of paper. It's important that you, you stick to just one sheet of paper. People sometimes try to write down an entire conversation. They'll copy it out of Slack and they'll come to me with like this thick sheaf that looks like it's a, the Bible or something. And they've, they've said, I've looked, I've analyzed my conversation. No, 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 you got the wrong idea. The idea is that you take a single sheet of paper, write down the key part of the conversation, the part where you really felt it went off the rails. Man, this doesn't make any sense. Or the part uh, that you dread, so it can be a future conversation. Mm. And on the right-hand side of that paper, you write down what people actually said, or in the case of a future conversation, what you think they might say based on your previous experience or your fears. And um, those are what a video cam would record. So you're just recording, um, you know, Jeffrey, you might say, Jeffrey looked down, that's kind of a stage direction, and um, it was silent. That would be a valid thing to put on there, but it would not. Um, Jeffrey um, scowled at the floor angrily, um, because <laughs> that would involve telepathy, which again, as I pointed out, uh, does not apply to anybody still listening to the podcast. Um, and then on the left-hand side, you write what you thought and felt. See, previous comments about telepathy, you can't write what the other person thought or felt. But you might say, oh, gosh, Jeffrey isn't interested in what I'm saying. Um, here, he's still being quiet. He still hasn't said anything. And he's still looking out the window. Man, uh, he just doesn't listen or care what I think. Those would be the kinds of things you might write on the left-hand side. And so that's the the recording part. I've got the right, the first R correct. So let's first see R, first R, record. first R is good. Record. Second, uh, second one is um, reflect. Got it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Nailed I got it. it. I'm not good at this. It is late at night here. Um, so <laughs> the second one is reflect. So you might go through, and we have a whole set of things in the book for scoring a conversation, for circling certain things and underlining others, and so on. You could also just uh, do your own reflection on, on what is important. You might look for a particular technique. So to do the ladder of inference, you might label each one with which rung you're on. So you know, was I acting or, or asking about or talking about my beliefs or my observations? Was I on conclusions or assumptions? And so various things can help you. And, and the book has all these different techniques. But uh, what fundamentally happens is you look at it and you say, where did I screw up? And you're, you're focused on your <laughs> behavior. You're looking for the things that you can change uh, because it's not the analysis of the other person and has your thoughts and feelings. For example, I might analyze that pretend uh, dialogue that I was imagining. And I might say, gosh, I never told Jeffrey that I was feeling left out or that he didn't care what I was thinking. I wasn't transparent. So that would be my reflection. I would notice that uh, behavior. Uh, third one is revise. So now I get out my red pen and I start actually changing what's uh, in the um, in the conversation. And uh, I, I look at that and I, I figure out that there's something that I could change. For instance, I could say at some point, hey, Jeffrey, I noticed you're looking down. Could you tell me more about why that is? Uh, and that would be a, a possible revision. Uh, and then I role play it. So I, I go and uh, get, so get a friend, ideally, but I could do this in the mirror and actually try saying the words. And surprisingly or unsurprisingly, often the words you write don't match the natural way that you might speak or they might sound very different to how you expect. Right. So then this is the skill part. This is the playing of the piano, the, the playing the scales to say, all right, did this actually sound good? Well, it seemed good in my head to play the keys this way, but man, I, I, I'm missing one there. That, that, that was a jarring transition. I didn't do it right. So then you can go back and repeat. I think we're up to five now. So you can yep. repeat 
the um, uh, the process and re uh, uh, reflect further, uh, revise further, and role play some more. And then the final R of the six of the four R's is uh, to uh, reverse the role play. So you try mm. having the other person be you and you be the other person. And when you hear your words said to you, then it can often change what you think. So if you go through all those steps, and it sounds uh, like a lot, it's actually something you can do very briefly. It takes you know, 10 or 15 minutes at most to do a basic version of this. If you can do all those steps, then suddenly you've got a, a revised action that can help you in the next conversation or for a conversation you're in the future, you can have that conversation better. You can avoid the, the outcome you're worried about. So in this exercise, you know, reading the book and I'm like, okay, all this, I start on the right hand side of the page and read right to left. And I can't help but think that this was a conscious decision, given that, you know, we're reading English and it's read left to right. So what was the logic there from putting the, what was said on the right and what was like interpreted or like the internal monologue on the left? We had an endless debate with the publisher on this one. Oh, really? Okay, I've <laughs> it's, waited it's in deep waters. Very, very, no, a very simple answer, which is that the, 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 all these ideas, or a lot of these ideas are based on um, tons of social science research. So there's an uh, uh, in-depth um, uh, set of references in the book to all these um, different social scientists, the chief one being uh, Chris Argyris, who um, uh, was a very prominent Yale and uh, Harvard professor studying organizations and talked to you know, tens of thousands of people and tested these ideas out on them and discovered how well they worked. And um, uh, he, for, for reasons that he's not around to tell us anymore, mm -hmm. decided when he first wrote it down to put the thoughts and feelings on the left and the, the, what actually happened on the right. And um, we've had some questions about that, especially from our publisher who really wanted to switch it around. We said, you're gonna go back to the literature and you're gonna read it. And you're gonna, they're gonna talk about the left-hand column. You're gonna have it backwards. We, we can't do that. So um, sorry if it's slightly confusing to English. It's probably easier for, for people who read Hebrew, for example. Yeah. But um, that, that we're, we're stuck with the, the history. And uh, I don't think it's a bad practice. Um, after, you, after you read a bunch of them, you can kind of read the two columns together. And uh, it does actually help you to, to understand the context while you are reading the words. But I agree, it's um, a little confusing and, and jarring at first. Uh, I just not. It was just one of those things that... Uh you know, it stands out like, hey, this is different. And then the question is, hmm, I wonder why it's different. And <laughs> just sort of like got me thinking like, well, then maybe I really need, because I have to change the way that I read or think about this, maybe I have to process like this thing first and then read and then look at this thing. It just always reminded me which the order to look at this as opposed to maybe like what was the internal versus the uh, external. And it, it is good that you reflect on the, the differences between those because it's very easy for your brain to conflate them mm. and to say, well, of course, Jeffrey knew that I was um, annoyed with him and that, that I thought he wasn't listening. Of course, he, he could tell. I mean, it was so obvious to me. Um, so, of course, he could tell. And, of course, poor Jeffrey sat there thinking, oh, gosh, I'm really concentrating and listening to this really good stuff. And he has no idea that I have this negative opinion because he can't read my mind. So it is helpful to kind of jolt yourself out of that assumption. Yeah, that's kind of what I what I got from it was by the fact that it's different. It's a way to jolt yourself out of that frame of reference where, hey, I'll read this first, which will give one layer. I'll read the other layer and then read them all together to give this unified understanding. But since you ladder up through the different layers, you can see through this kind of ladder of inference what fits and what doesn't fit, like where exactly it went wrong right? That's the theory. Well, 
I guess we'll never know. It in order to, well, <laughs> I, I don't know why Argyris did it that way, uh, but, but the, the experience you're describing is the one that you can develop over time. But it's it, it's not always it's not always natural to do. Mm. Of course, what's even what's even uh, less natural is to uh, actually reflect and revise in your conversations. So exactly, that's the big they, thing. That, that that's the the, uh, the 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 thing that actually people do struggle to do. And the reason is it goes back to this kind of idea of a, a practice, like practice is effortful. Mm. You know, that's if you have this idea of people looking to skill acquisition, that, that the importance of deliberate practice and one of the elements of deliberate practice is that it does take effort. Uh, I've, we actually recommend people to, if they can, to um, practice in groups, uh, what we would call a conversational dojo. And the advantage of do- conversational dojo is twofold. One is you you get um, more feedback because as you're revising your own conversation, you still may have your own cognitive biases. It might be difficult to see some of your own performance. And um, but the thing is, the other people aren't affected by your cognitive biases at all. They can <laughs> say, "No, no, you're that's you're you're treating that as though it's a fact, Adam." But actually, you know, that's just your opinion, man. <laughs> man, <laughs> exactly. That's just your opinion, man. And you might you might try figure out where that opinion came from and look, what would it take? What would you have to learn that would make you feel something different? And if the answer is nothing, maybe you're not actually open to learning here. Maybe you're lacking curiosity, but if you can get that kind of feedback from other people, which is one of the things that makes a conversational dojo so valuable. The other thing, and actually this is more subtle, but I think even stronger is that when you hear other people, the same thing is true, but in reverse. And you can start spotting their mistakes and their cognitive biases, it's a lot easier to learn how to spot cognitive biases in someone else than it is in yourself. But it kind of acts to like a bootstrapping mechanism. You start to start to recognize them. And once you get proficient at recognizing other people, now when you come back to your own case, the thing that you've written out, your own recording, once it's out of your head, and by the way, this is the key thing, it has to be recorded outside of your head, then suddenly you can start treating that you on the paper as not you. You can start bringing those skills you develop in spotting mistakes in other people and apply them to your own case. And uh, that helps, so that that conversational dojo practice really helps uh, accelerate the learning process. Yeah. If And one thing that we found as, as we uh, talked with people who were reading the book was exactly like you, Adam, they, they hadn't gone and got the paper and, and written on it. But then when they came to a dojo, they were kind of forced to do that. They kind of felt that they they had some social pressure and they found that they were able to get a whole lot of benefit from analyzing their conversations. So we've, we've done a bunch of this. We want to do more. Uh, we even wrote a whole conversational dojo kit, which comes along uh, and kind of says, well, if you want to apply the ideas in the book, here's how you do it. That's um, for free. Uh, and you can find that on conversationaltransformation.com or just search the words conversational dojo and you'll find it. So, so far, my takeaway from this conversation is get the paper, Fill out the paper, <laughs> you know, put in the work, practice the skill without practicing the skill. It's just ideas and, you know, it's theories. But like we talk about it on the podcast, like theories are one thing, but you actually have to put them into practice to realize the results. So exactly, I will get a paper and I will analyze this conversation. Excellent. If we've, if we've succeeded in convincing you, we've, we've succeeded in our, uh, in our mission here. Well, mission accomplished. Well, Jeffrey and Squirrel, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing a small batch of human language delivery education. I really appreciate it. Is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with before we go? 
Well, I, I will say this. If people uh, like the sound of a conversational dojo and would like to be part, uh, we're going to be running some public dojos. And if you'd like to be notified, you can go to conversationaltransformation.com, sign up for the newsletter, and we'll be sending those out and asking for people if we're interested in what time zone. And we plan on running them in multiple time zones. It might even work for uh, for someone several time zones away from us. In fact, I'm, I'm sure we'll have ones that will, will work for basically everyone. I'm sure we will. And of course, you can also, if you if you like listening to us, you can come. And if you like podcasts, you can come listen to ours, which is called Troubleshooting Agile. And uh, um, that's uh, we're on episode, I think, 145. So uh, very welcome to listen to that and hear more of us discussing all of these topics in a lot more depth. So uh, come along and find that. That's also on conversationaltransformation.com. Oh, yeah. And uh, buy the book. It's good. It's a oh, fun. Yeah, of course, our publisher a, likes it when we say that. Yeah, so please buy the book. Uh, the, it, there's an audio version which has a great narrator as well as the uh, um, Kindle and uh, printed versions. All right. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. It was my pleasure to talk to you both, and I hope I can speak to you again. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. You've just finished another episode of Small Batches, a podcast on building a high-performance software delivery organization. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, go to smallbatches.fm. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. Like the sound of Small Batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.